Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one, excuse me, yeah, beginning in verse one. And Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that all, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that men would adorn themselves, excuse me, that women would adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls with co- or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is the word of the Lord. Author and speaker Jerry Bridges once wrote, Godliness is a devotion which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. So I want to welcome you back to our relatively new series titled First Timothy, subtitled a ser- um, uh, The Plan for Church and Life. And we, as you know, are going through the letter of 1 Timothy in the New Testament because it is a blueprint for the local church. 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, is the foundation on which we build our understanding of the church and what the local church is for. And and given the time that we live in, given the, the time that we live in, it is important that we grow in our understanding of the church, especially the the theology of the local church. One of the things that has become apparent to us in the world around us over this last year is many Christians really have a deficient view of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be. They really don't understand why the church exists and what the church is for and why the church gathers together on the Lord's Day. That's why so many Christians who are healthy willingly gave up their God-given right to gather together as the church. This is why so many people have adopted the attitude that the government had the unquestionable right to direct the affairs of the church, particularly for corporate worship. It's also why so many Christians have not come back to church, because they believe that they can actively be a part of the local church at a distance and through technology. Now understand, I want you to hear me. I am grateful to God because of the gift of of of, of technology, right? It has given us the ability to connect with folks that physically just cannot be here. There are a few people that just cannot be here because they can't even hardly get out of the house, right? For health reasons. And there are even some people who, you know, can, cannot be with us be, because they are traveling out of town. 
But for those who are here and for those who are healthy, many have developed this false sense that they can become an active part of the local church the way that God ordained them for them to be without actually connecting with the body of Christ in person. The truth is, is for these reasons and many more, many believers really have a, a large and insufficient view of the local church. And in light of that, it's a really good time for us to study the biblical truth about the church and grow in our understanding of what the church is for. And so, so we can, that way we can live as members of the church the kind of lives that, that God is calling us to live. Because as we talked about, the church doesn't belong to us. The church belongs to God, and as such, it is to be, and it is to do what God says for it to be and to do. And as members of God's church, we belong to the church, and we belong to Him, and we are to live and worship in a way that He has ordained for us to as individuals and corporately as a church together. The church belongs to God, and we ought to seek to to live the way that He's calling us to. We ought to seek how He has expressed for us in His Word for us to behave as a church. Now, as we talked about, the First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to a very young pastor named Timothy. And he left Timothy in the city of Ephesus in order to bring reformation to the church there. And I say reformation because the church in that city had slipped off its theological and, and doctrinal foundation And the result was the church was now in trouble. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in Ephesus to accomplish three things in order to get the church right again. Number one, he says, you got to put an end to the false teaching. You need to command those false teachers to stop teaching false doctrine, which is what we saw in chapter one. And then number two, Paul is going to encourage Timothy to put into place qualified leaders in the church to replace the false teachers which is what we're going to see beginning in chapter 3. And then the third thing Paul instructs Timothy to do is to deal with the the behavioral problems that have been popping up in the church as a result of the false teaching and the bad theology. This is what we're going to begin to see in this chapter, in chapter number 2. And the first behavioral issue, as we talked about, the first behavioral issue that Paul deals with is the issue of prayer. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. You see, the division in the church and the elitist attitude towards other people, especially those who are hard to love, those things were getting in the way of the church's prayer life, which is an unhealthy habit. Because as we talked about last week, a healthy church is a praying church. And Paul makes it clear that if a church, if the church in Ephesus was going to be healthy, if the church was going to be the church that God was calling it to be, the church needed to get its prayer life right. And in this section of the text, Paul unpacks for us what that looked like. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. Paul lays out for us the what of prayer, the who and why and, and the where of prayer. And we spent a lot of time, again, unpacking that issue last week. And if you missed that message last week, what I want to do is encourage you to go back and listen to it again. You can listen to it on, on YouTube or our SoundCloud page or uh, even Spotify. And if you need a link to any of those things, you let me know, we'll, we'll get you connected. And even if you're like, hey, I don't even lighten on that technology stuff. Can you make me an old-fashioned CD? Then let me know and I'll make you one. It will help you to grow in your understanding of 
of, of prayer in the life of the church, and it will give you a context for what we're going to talk about today with respect to this same text. The first, you see, the first issue that Paul deals with when it comes to the congregation is prayer, but the second issue that Paul addresses is the issue of godliness or living a godly life. In fact, let's look at the text briefly again. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What I want you to notice is, is that Paul uses, he urges prayer for all kinds of people, specifically for kings and those in power, and then he goes on and gives us the reason why they are to pray this way. He says to pray that way so that we may lead a certain kind of life. Pray so that we can lead a certain kind of life, a quiet life, a peaceful life, a godly life, dignified in every way. And I don't want you to miss this. Paul urges the Ephesians to pray for those in leadership so they as Christians and as the church can live a life in a certain way. A life that is peaceful. A life that is quiet and dignified but more specifically, a life that is godly. You see, the first thing that Paul addresses is the issue of prayer, but then it leads to the issue of how they live their life. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that they pray for those in power, right, and that, so that they can live in a certain way? What's the point? Well, Paul tells us why it's important. He says, in verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The reason why we are to pray for those in power in order that we might live godly lives is because it is good and pleasing in God's sight because He desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, the way we pray and the way we live our lives directly impacts the kingdom of God. I don't want you to lose track of that. In fact, if there's a note that you want to write on the side, that might be one that you might want to write down. The way we pray and the way we live our lives directly impacts the kingdom of God. The way that we pray and the way we live our lives has a very real impact on others around us when it comes to the kingdom of God. Maybe even more clearly, the way we pray and the way we live our lives has, has impact on the eternity of other people. Do you? ever think in terms like that? That, the, that your prayer life and the way that you live out in the world directly impacts the eternity of other people. The thing that we must remember is, is Christ came into the world on a mission, and that mission was to save sinners. And that is the mission that we have been enlisted in as Christ's followers. As Paul reminds us in the letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For, because, for, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The thing that we need to remember is we're not saved by God so that we can spend the rest of our lives simply just being content in the knowledge that we're saved. 
I mean, there's great contentment in that, but that is not all there is to that. We're not saved so we can come here on Sunday and sit in comfortable chairs with the cooler on and then go home and live the rest of our lives if just nothing really changed. We were saved by God to glorify God through joining Christ in his life-saving mission. We were saved to be ambassadors for Christ. We were saved to the ministry of reconciliation, that we do our part to help reconcile people to God through Jesus Christ. By God's grace and by his infinite wisdom and design, we are members of the body of Christ, the church, and the church is the God-ordained instrument that he is using to defend and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is God's instrument to protect and proclaim the truth of Christ's finished work on the cross. And as members of the church, every one of us, we all, every one of us have a part to play in that. And among the ways that we play our part in the work of God's redemption and to bring others to faith is through our prayer life and through the way that we live our lives. We are Christians. We, as Christians, are called to be people of prayer and we are called to live lives of godliness. We are to live godly lives. In fact, the Apostle Peter concurs and tells us, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were saved to bear fruit. If there's a truth that is repeated over and over and over again in the Scriptures is the fact that we are to bear fruits. You were rescued by Christ to be effective, an effective tool in the hand of God. Right? And the way that you are to remain effective and the way that you are to bear fruit, one of those ways is to live a godly life. That's why Paul calls the Ephesians to live in godliness. That's why Paul is telling Timothy to deal with these behavioral issues. He's exhorting them to live a godly life. And by, by application, we also, as members of Christ's body, ought to pursue godly lives of our own. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to live a godly life? It's kind of an abstract idea. In fact, what is godliness in the first place? I think everybody has a sense of it, but I think we all would have different ideas. Well, in this text, Paul actually uses two different words that I think gives us a pretty good picture that encapsulates the idea of godliness. The first one is found in verse 2 where Paul says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. And the word that's translated godly here can also be translated as godliness, but it's the word eusebia, right? And the word simply means piety or devotion to God. That's, that's your first fill-ins right there. Piety or devotion to God. Now, that's certainly rather generic as far as definitions go, but let's look a, bit, a little bit closer. The word... Eusebius is, is made up of two different words. It's made up of the word you or EU, right? 
which means well or good. I mean, and it's, and it's, it's a prefix that we're familiar with. Like when we think of the word eulogy, right? Eulogy simply means good story, right? Or even euthanasia, when we like have an animal that we love put down. It means good death, right? The prefix you means good. And then we take that prefix and we add to it the word sabomai, which means to venerate or pay homage to something. And so putting these words together, it's this idea of venerating something in a way that is good. It is it's, it's to pay homage to something or someone in a way that's good or satisfactory. The idea that Paul is communicating here by, the, by using this word is that, that a person is to live a life that venerates God in a good way or lives a life that pays homage to God in a pleasing way. It's about living a life that honors God. That's what godliness means or, or godly means. One commentator says that this word Eusebia is, is an inner response to the things of God which shows itself in godly piety. This word Eusebia carries with it the idea that the things of God, like His grace and His mercy and justice and holiness and His sovereignty, ought to have an impact on us internally. That these things that would then move us, that these things would shape us on the inside, which then influences our external actions. Those who live godly lives are internally motivated by the truth about God, and that's reflected in their actions, which ultimately venerate and honor God. You see, it's not simply about doing things to please God. It's about doing things that please God out of the changed heart that He's given us in response to the glorious things that He has done for us. Does that make sense? The thing is, when we say Christians are to live a godly life, we're not calling them to become legalistic and live by some external standard in order to win God's favor or to look the part uh, as the pious Christian. What we're saying is Christians ought to live a godly life as a natural outworking of their changed hearts and out of the gratitude for what God has already done for us. It is living a life that venerates God because of what God in Christ has done for us. That is Eusebia. That's the first word that Paul uses to describe godliness. But then he uses a different word in verse 10. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. The word godly in this verse is derived from the Greek word theosban, which I think I butchered that, but it's theosban. And I've got that in your notes there. But that word simply means fear or reverence for God. Right? It's actually made up of two words. It means God and fear. What this is, is an internal attitude toward God that's manifested in one's actions. But notice, what Paul, notice how Paul connects this together. I want you to see how these things go together. Women should adorn themselves in respectful, uh, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. 
Paul is saying those women who, who have a godly fear or reverence for God will live and behave in a way that is fitting or God-honoring. They will be modest. They will be self-controlled and humble because of the reverence and the fear of God. This is an attitude that impacts a person's actions. And this word for godliness is rooted in one of the most important themes in the entire Bible. And that is having a reverential fear of the Lord. If there is one of the truths that is communicated throughout all of Scripture, it is a truth that we all ought to have a holy, reverential fear of God. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13. By the way, I'm going to go really fast through a lot of scriptures, okay? Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance are the way of, of, of evil and perverted speech I hate. Job 28.28. 28. And he said to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Matthew 10.28. And do not fear those who could who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can destroy the bo both soul and the body in hell. Ecclesiastes 12.13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 33.8, Let the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Proverbs 14.27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, we can just continue on, but the fear of the Lord is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. And it's not like a dreadful fear that people have of like spiders or, or snakes or, you know, or heights or of people that might be dangerous. This is a different kind of fear. It is a holy fear a reverential kind of dread because God is so vastly different than us. It's an understanding that God is holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present and unchanging and self-existing. God is the most powerful being in all existence. And to be near Him ought to compel us to want to be near Him, but at the same time be filled full of a holy dread because we're in the presence of something incredibly holy. This reverential fear of the Lord is prescribed throughout the Scriptures, and this holy reverential fear leads to wisdom, as we see in right action. So this godliness that Paul is talking about here is an internal motivation because of who God is and what God has done for us. It is a holy reverential fear of God that leads to a life of right action that honors and venerates God. More succinctly, godliness is right action that is motivated by a heart that has a right understanding of who He is. Because when you know who God is, and when you understand who you are in light of who God is, and you understand what God has done for you by His grace in spite of you, you now, you cannot help but to have a deep reverence for God, which then in turn leads to living a life that pays homage to God, a life that honors Him. 
Godliness is right action that's motivated by a heart that has a right understanding of God. That is what godliness is. But godliness is actually more than just that. Godliness has its identity in God himself, hence the word. In fact, that you can actually say that godliness is actually God-likeness. It's God-likeness. God, godliness is being like God in attitude and in actions, which, by the way, is exactly what we were created for. Genesis 1 tells us that, right? That we were created to be a reflection of God. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let us and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were created in the likeness, in the image of God which means we were created to reflect Him in the world around us. We were created to be like God and reflect His attributes of holiness and righteousness and love and grace and creativity and justice. We were created to reflect all of God's communicable attributes. And I say communicable ones because there are some attributes of God that we can't mimic because He's God. But that's what godliness is. It's God-likeness because we were created in the image of God to be like Him and to reflect Him. Godliness is also the opposite of ungodliness because ungodliness is then, by definition, ungod-likeness. Ungodliness is the opposite of God's attributes. Ungodliness is unholiness. It is unrighteousness. It's unforgiveness. It's hatred. It's jealousy. It's dishonesty. It's lust. It's bitterness. These are the things that Christians, because of Christ in them, are to walk away from because they are unlike God. These are the things that, that, that make mankind at odds with God. Ungodliness is why we were at odds with God in the first place. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 8. For what? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what's that? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? It's also the reason why the law was given. Remember? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We just covered that recently. Understand this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly. Peter chimes in on this and says, in 1 Peter verse, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? Again, Peter in, second, in his second letter says, uh, 2 Peter 3, 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Jude adds this and says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ungodliness is ungodlikeness. And that's who we were before Christ. We were the ungodly. We, we, because of our sin, were unlike God in our nature. And because of that, the wrath of God abided on us. And by our own efforts, we had no hope. But then the gospel of grace gives us hope, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Well, who's the ungodly? Well, it says, For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, we were ungodly, Christ died for us. Before Christ came into our lives, before the Holy Spirit changed our hearts, before we heard the gospel and we repented and believed, we were, by very definition, the ungodly. Now, after Christ had come and lived a perfect life for us that we couldn't live and died to pay a penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay and then rose again, proving that He can do what He promised to do, which is save us from our sins and the wrath of God, And then after the Holy Spirit comes to us and changes our hearts and convicts us of our sin and convinces of us of our need for a Savior, we respond to God and His offer through repentance and faith. And in that moment, we were moved from death into life. And we were given the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us, sanctify us, changing us more and more to the image of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer ungodly, but we become by the power of God at work in us progressively more and more godly or godlike. And that is to be reflected more and more in our lives. Which leads to the last thing I will say about godliness. Godliness is not just an external It's not just an internal attitude, and it's not just some of our actions. Godliness ultimately is a lifestyle. Godliness is the way we are to live our lives. Again, notice what Paul says. First of all, then, I urge that in treaties and prayers, I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible because it gives it a little bit more detail. I urge the entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Our lives are to be defined by godliness or godlikeness, or in other words, a holy reverential fear of God. Godliness is to be our lifestyle. So now we know what godliness is. Let's talk about what are the characteristics of godliness because we see a little bit of that here in the text. Now this text doesn't give us all the details about godliness. I want you to understand the concept of godliness is a worthwhile study that you should study through all the scriptures to find. But in this text, Paul gives us some things to think about that I think are profitable for us to meditate on and ultimately to apply to our lives. And so I'd like to take just a little bit of time this morning to explore that. And the first thing I want you to notice is Paul says, right, that he urges prayer for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead 
a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. I want you to notice the word dignified here and how it's connected with godly. I think it's safe to say that a godly life is a dignified life. It's a life of dignity. Now, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek that we translate as dignified means it can mean honor or weight or gravity or seriousness. The word, ref- the word reflects what has been transformed by God and exhibits a moral and spiritual gravity, like, like what attends a deep, godly character. The sense of dig- dignity also invites reverence from others who would likewise ex- exalt what is noble or morally elevated. You see, the idea of dignity here communicates a sense of a life that is itself worthy of respect. That's the idea. A person who lives a godly life as a natural byproduct lives a life that is worthy of respect from other people. It is a life that is worthy of honor, a life that reflects the honor that's due to God. You see, one of the troubles that we see in the world around us is, some, is the, in some areas the deep inconsistency between a Christian's verbal witness, and then the life they live. Those two things at times, in some circumstances, are worlds apart. The idea is this, that if we truly are changed by, as a natural byproduct, we would live a life that is respectable because we're living in the image of God. As Christians and those who were or, or like God in character, ought to live lives worthy of honor, not because of who we are, but because of the one that we reflect. A godly life is a dignified life. But a godly life is also a quiet life. And this word quiet is really easy for us to just kind of like overlook and just kind of like have a sense of what it means, but not really think about it. Paul says we ought to have live a quiet life. And the word that that's translated as quiet, can be translated as tranquil or even peaceful. But the idea that's being communicated here is that a godly life is itself a calm life. It's a life that is steady, settled, due to a divinely inspired inner calmness. You see, the word that he's using here communicates the idea of an inner peace. Why would Christians have an inner peace? We have an inner peace because we now are at peace with God Himself. That's the root of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. Hear this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the results of that is through Him that we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, a quiet life is a life of inner peace. And we have inner peace when when things are hard because we are at peace with God Himself. And we have the promise that God will use all 
of our circumstances, including our suffering, to work out good for us. Hence Romans 8.28. And we know, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We have a life of inner peace because we have hope built on God. And that quiet life ought to lead then to a peaceful life. This is the opposite kind of peace as the quiet life. This is an external peaceful life. A quiet life is the internal peace, right? The peaceful life he's talking about here is an external life of peace. Now, the word that's used here means undisturbed. It means placid. It means free from outward disturbance, tranquil, without needless commotion or disturbances. The idea here is that we are at peace both internally and externally. In fact, our internal peace with God ought to manifest itself out into the world as a peaceful life externally. Now, this doesn't mean, I want you to hear me, this does not mean for any at all, this does not mean a life free from difficulty. That's not what it means. This does not mean a life free from persecution. But it is, it is a, it's rather a quality of life that is peaceful towards others, regardless of our circumstances. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or as Jesus says, the radically different life of the Christian, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A godly life, a life that honors God, a life that reflects His character, is an externally peaceful life. That means when the whole world is coming against us, Though we might suffer, though we might cry out to God in pain and agony, we reflect the peace of God. That we stand firm, that you can take everything from me, but hallelujah, all I have is Christ. But then Paul says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, or reflecting the life of peace, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, there is so much more I can say on the topic you know, of the characteristics of, of, of what it means to be godly, living a godly life, right? But I have one more characteristic I'm going to take from this text that I really feel that we need to take to heart. And that is that living a godly life is a self-controlled life. Excuse me. A godly life, a godlike life, is lived in reverence toward God and as such is dignified or respectable. And this life is marked by an inner peace or quietness and exhibits itself in an external peace. And that kind of life is marked with a sense of self-control. The Greek word that is, that, that's used here that gets translated as self-control can mean soundness of mind. It can mean sanity, sobriety, or even self-restraint. 
And the idea that Paul is communicating here is those in Christ ought to live a life that's marked by clear-headedness. That they ought to live in a sober fashion. That ought to live a life of self-restraint. Not a life of chaos because of circumstances. Not a life of frustration because of disorganization. Not a life of the fog of intoxication. By the way, the Bible, this is why the Bible prohibits drunkenness. The Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol, but it does prohibit all forms, all forms of intoxication. Because intoxication or drunkenness is a lack of self-control. Anything that intoxicates you to where you lose control is by definition ungodly. You see, a life of self-control is a natural byproduct of the inner peace that comes from having peace with God and knowing and understanding who God is and all that God has done for us. There's a lot the Bible says about self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Galatians 5, 22-23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such, there, against such things there is no law. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A godly life is a self-controlled life. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Even more instructive is Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That sober-minded means self-controlled. Self-control is a characteristic of a godly life. Now, we know that what godliness is and what some of the characteristics of what godliness, let's just talk about why we ought to pursue godliness. I think it's important at times that we stop long enough to ask that question, why? Well, number one, the reason why we pursue godliness is because it's, it's a witness to the world. Our godly lives are a witness to the world around us. That's why Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our lives bear witness to the world of the goodness of God. Our lives ought to match our verbal witness. That's why we say things like, sow the seed, love the people, and pray that God changes their hearts. Our proclamation of the gospel is a verbal witness to them, but our changed lives is a visible witness to them. Because the natural byproduct of being saved is a changed life. This is why it's such a dangerous thing for people to teach the, 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 the concept of easy believism or cheap grace, which is simply this idea. If you will come to church and pray some magic prayer or walk emotionally down the aisle at some point and just say some words that you were saved no matter what, even if you live like a demon in unrepentant sin the rest of your life. I've heard that said before. And in fact, I still hear it said. All you need to do is pray this prayer and you're in the club. By the way, you will not find those kind of words in the Bible. You will not 
find Peter in the book of Acts saying, close your hand and slip that hand up there. I see that hand. I see that hand. Peter does not make that profession. We're, we're, we're exhorted to repent and believe the gospel. The idea of cheap grace is unbiblical, but it's destructive to the witness of God's grace in the lives of his people. We ought to live lives that have been chained supernaturally by God so they can see that. And that matches in the witness of the gospel. Secondly, the reason why we ought to pursue godliness is godliness is an example to other believers. As Christians, we are called to to disciple other believers. As Christians, we are both disciples and disciple makers, which means we teach them how to follow Christ. Jesus said, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you to do. Living a life of godliness is an example to other believers to help them to grow in holiness and godliness. And third, the third reason why we should pursue godliness is godliness is the fruit of our conversion. Paul tells God tells us that godliness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Godliness bears witness to the fact that we have been truly born again. It bears witness that we have been radically transformed by the grace of God. It bears witness that we are being sanctified by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. As we grow in godliness, it gives us assurance that we have actually come to faith because it's the fruit of our salvation. It bears witness that we truly belong to Him. One of the... A few years ago, I'd preached the gospel and somebody said to me, man, what you said really convicted me. And maybe even, am I even saved? I said, do you feel deep remorse and conviction for your sin? He said, yes. I said, praise the Lord. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit's in in you convicting of your sin. That's the promise. That's the promise that God will convict you and change you. That's the evidence that you're looking for. That, that reminds you that God chastises those that He loves. And so that's why we pursue godliness in our lives. But then, how do we manifest this godliness in the world around us? Well, I'm going to wrap up with this to, this to answer, but I'm going to wrap up by answering this particular question. How do we manifest this godliness in our lives? And the answer here is actually pretty simple. It is good works. Paul says, Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair or with gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Good works. Our external behavior is the manifestation of a godly life. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 16, in the same way, again, I'm going to come back to this text, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Timothy 6.18, They are to do good and be rich in good works to 
to be generous and ready to share. 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, All scriptures... All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity. Titus 2, 11-14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, notice that word, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who were zealous for, was that? Good works. Now, I can go on and on. There's even more examples just in Titus by itself. But I think you get the point. Godliness, a holy, reverential fear of God that is revealed in a life that venerates God is manifested for the world to see through our good works. Our godly lives are made known to those around us by our good works. And those good works ought to demonstrate a life of internal and external peace and self-control. That's why Paul is telling Timothy to address the church. This false teaching that they'd gotten caught up in, the lack of prayer, had led to ungodly behavior inside and outside of the church. And so after putting an end to the false teaching, Paul tells Timothy to address the issues of prayer and godly living. Now, what do we do with this? And I'm going to tell you what I've heard hundreds of times. You need to work on living a godly life. That's what I've heard. But I'm going to tell you right now, that is not the truth. We are not to look at godliness and see what it is Right? and how it's manifested in the world, and see how we miss the mark, and then say, oh, I need to work harder. I need to try harder. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to get better at this. I need to get better at that. I need to live by those fruits of the Spirit. I need to be more patient and peaceful. I need to do this. I... No. You know what that's called? That's called legalism. That's called legalism. This coming to understand what a godly life is. And what it looks like in exhorting people to grow in godliness is not a directive to begin to try to live by some external set of rules. It is not about you trying to make God happy by your actions. And it's certainly not about you trying to pretend to be something that you're not. It's not about you gritting your teeth, right? And and, and trying to do more good works and, and, and trying to think about how you can be more God-honoring. This is not a call for you to try to please God by creating a checklist of things for you to do. You know, well, I've been wearing modest clothes. Check. Well, I didn't flip that guy off when, I, when he cut me off. 
Check. I gave 12% instead of 10%. Check. I gave some food to a homeless person. I bought some shoes for a poor kid. I read my Bible today. And man, I even prayed three times. Check, 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 check. It's not what it's about. The call to godliness is a call to remember where your hope is. It's to remember what Paul said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time for this reason. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul's ministry is not to give people a set of rules to live by. Paul's ministry is to use the law of God to convict people of their sin and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and then call them to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. You see, you were, you see, we are confronted, when we are confronted with the fact that we are falling short of living a godly life, the life that God is calling us to, the answer is not, I need to try harder. The answer is, I need to continue to repent and believe. I need to continue to turn my eyes upon Christ. As Paul says to the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? When you were first confronted with your sin, the call was not, hey, you need to get your life together. You better start obeying the law, right? No. The call was, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't change yourself. So turn to Christ in faith and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. The call was and continues to be repent and believe the gospel. You see, the answer is still exactly the same. You didn't get saved by you becoming obedient, and you don't become obedient somehow because you are getting good at this. You were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You went from being ungodly to godly, not because of what you could do for God, but by the power of God through the gospel. You became godly by trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You became godly by the Holy Spirit coming into your heart and changing you from the inside out. You see, this standard of godliness that Paul reveals to us ought to act like, again, a mirror revealing for us that we are growing, revealing where we still fall short, and revealing to us how we still need to depend on Christ to save us and for the Holy Spirit to continue to change us. Because the godliness Paul is talking about is not some external set of rules to be followed. It is an external reflection of our faith and dependence upon Christ. Our lives will reflect this obedience and this godliness best when we are truly trusting and abiding in Christ, in Christ alone. And when we see that we're not living the way that we ought to be living, the answer is not, I need to try harder. The answer is, I need to repent and continue to believe. Turn to Christ. Focus on Him and what He has done. Abide in Him in prayer and in His Word. Pray, Lord, change my heart. I can't do it. I'm trusting in You and You alone. Conform me into Your image. I'm trusting in You to save me. You see, the Christian life 
at every stage, at every turn, is always about the same thing. It is always, always, always about the gospel. The way in which we become people of prayer, the way that we become people who grow in godliness, is to center our lives and our hearts and our minds on the gospel of grace, to trust in Christ and Christ alone. It is remembering and reminding ourselves daily that God is holy, righteous, and just and created all things, including us. And he created us in his image to have a relationship with him, but that relationship was destroyed by our sin. And that sin earned for us rightly for for God's justice to be done upon us. In fact, the only thing that God ever owed us was was his, his judgment and his wrath. And there's nothing we could do to fix it on our own. We can't overcome the stain of our sin. In fact, we had no desire to do so on our own. But then God, in His grace and His mercy, according to the counsel of His will and His plan of redemption, sent Jesus Christ into the world. God became flesh to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to secure for us a righteousness that was not our own, and then to die on the cross to make payment for our sins and to suffer in our place the awful and terrible wrath of God we rightly deserve. And he was dead. And then three days later, he rose again, proving that he's exactly what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sins. And all that is required from us to avail ourselves of this righteousness and having our sin paid and eternity with God forever is simply this, repent and believe the gospel. And that is how our life is to be lived from now into all eternity. Lest we become puffed up. Lest we become self-righteousness. We ought to live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Not by our own power that somehow we suddenly magically are just good people. The, The holiness and the righteousness that He is calling us to, this godly life, can only be lived in dependence upon the finished work of Christ on the cross, and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the only way that we can really avail ourselves of that is to remain and abide in His Word and abide with Him in His prayer. What did Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Only in Christ can we bear the fruit that He's calling us to bear. Only by trusting and remaining connected to Him can we live the godly lives that He's calling us to live. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.